All right, go ahead and be seated. If, uh, if you have been reading ahead, you know that we're in a discussion of what is called eschatology, uh, the study of last things, of the end times. Um, or not, some people don't believe Matthew 24 has anything to do uh, with the end. Kind of will ignore them this morning. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I realize that uh, some of you are, are new to uh, things pertaining to the end. Uh, the stuff that much of what Zechariah talks about, much of what Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah talk about, uh, Matthew 24, 25, uh, the book of Revelation. And my encouragement to you is to, um, to don't stress out about it. Um, I've been looking at it for, you know, 25 years and exploring it in all of the passages of Scripture. And, and uh, I've developed my position on what I believe is the, the clarity of... Um, the sense of what Scripture is trying to communicate. Um, and I remember when I first began and how intimidating it was, and especially with those that had all this language and were quoting passages and all of it. So if you're new to it, um, just relax, okay? And, uh, you know, do your best to pay attention. I'm trying to uh, relate to you as much as I can as I go through this. Um, yeah, so don't worry if you miss a few points. Repetition is always the best uh, medicine, amen? And as you get older, uh, we know that repetition is absolutely necessary. And so, and if you've had COVID a couple times, you're done. So I can't remember any names and it's killing me. Everything that was there from years ago is just there, uh, but anything new, it's like it was never there. It's just amazing. And I'm not even 50 so also, there are others of you that are very familiar with eschatology, and you've studied it over the years, and you've come to your own uh, position on some of this, and, um, and there's a lot of positions. And uh, so uh, I just pray that you would also listen carefully, and I would love to chat with you about our differences. Uh, I imagine that those that all have the greatest differences uh, are those that uh, we have the same conclusions, but we have different methods of getting there. And I've said it before, I'm not a dispensationalist. I know that I'm throwing terms out there, and, and you're like, well, thanks for that. I'll have to Google that. Don't Google it right now, Rachel, okay? I, it's, it's embarrassing, I know. Um, but, uh, but I agree with a lot of conclusions of, of, of dispensationalism, but I'm not a dispensationalist. Uh, probably the greatest dispensationalist that's ever lived, convinced me that I wasn't. Uh, he helped get me out of that camp. Uh, it irritates a lot of Calvary Chapel pastors, uh, but we still conclude uh, the same way in, in many ways. Uh, so people are texting me. It's bothering me. Um, it was probably Rachel. Was it you? <laughs> um, and so you may be the least gracious with me, but uh, we're not going to have any contention here. Amen? Okay, so let's have fun exploring it together. Let's talk about our differences. Um, I always want my position to be strengthened, and if my position can't stand under scrutiny, then I want to adjust or abandon. Safe enough? All right. Okay, so Pastor Roger actually talked me out of teaching the text of Matthew 24 verse by verse today, because I'm going to be taking some time off, and I wouldn't be able to finish the whole chapter today, and then by the time I got back, I just have to review for a whole Sunday to get everybody, you know, back um, 
uh, on, on point. And so uh, that's not what I'm going to do. Um, today, we're going to be looking at the outline of the chapter, and then through that, hopefully uh, establish a justifiable way to interpret what Jesus taught. Okay, so a way to interpret is what we call a hermeneutic. So if I throw that out there out of habit, it just means, hermeneutic means a method of interpretation, okay? And we have to uh, establish a method of interpretation every time we come to the Bible, amen? There, there's, there's good rules to abide by uh, to keep us from error, all right? So uh, I want to establish an outline that comes out of the text, and then from that outline, uh, we're going to figure out uh, how it is that Jesus intended for us uh, to understand uh, what he said, okay? Uh, this is all important, and, uh, but it, and, and I want to just confess that it doesn't necessarily make the interpretation of Matthew 24 easy. Uh, if we didn't have Luke's input from his gospel, it would be very easy. But Luke screws everything up, Okay? And uh, so I'm not going to get into Luke today, but when we go through it verse by verse in a few weeks, um, I will bring Luke into it, address the challenges, and, uh, and hopefully figure out what in the world uh, is going on with his uh, input. As he's speaking to Gentiles, and Matthew is clearly speaking to the Jews. Yeah, and um, so that'll be fun. Now, some people uh, are really intimidated by uh, eschatology. Other people think that it should be avoided uh, because it has caused some contention. Well, actually, every piece of theology has caused contention throughout church history because people are wrestling with it. We should wrestle with it because it's been delivered to us by Jesus. Uh, they say that you know some 40% of the Bible is prophecy, and a quarter of that is eschatology. It, it, it pertains to the very end of, of world history. It, it, scripture says that we should study it. It was given to us. So let's Let's wrestle with it, but as we do it, let's wrestle with it well and maturely, okay? And, the, and whatever we do, we want to be textual. We want to be biblical as we look at it, yeah. Um, so before we uh, read the whole chapter, I want to recover some of the context because I think some of it is important to understanding what Jesus is now going to address. The, in in, in the, the context prior to this, we know that Jesus... He, he finished up all of his discussions with the, the religious leaders of Israel. Uh, he stumped them. He just finished it. So there's no more discussion. Nobody wants to challenge him anymore. And then uh, he went into uh, chapter 23 with all of these woes to the religious leaders of Israel, condemning them for their hypocrisy, their evil, their legalism, and all of that stuff. But then Jesus left off in chapter 23 with this uh, somewhat of a, a lamentation over Jerusalem, the people, uh, the sad reality that her, her house was going to be left desolate. And we talked about that last week, what we believe the house is. And then Jesus says that you would not see me again until you confess, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the following chapter, chapter 24, is about the return, the coming of the Lord, which suggests, it indicates that Israel will someday confess that Jesus is the blessed one, their Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the anticipation of all of it. It's encouraging. But what leads up to 
the Jewish confession of Christ, is tragic. That's just how it is in the scriptures. So let's read the chapter. Uh, I'll read it to you, and then we'll do our outline, and we'll establish what I believe is the sense of the passage itself, okay? So please follow along, and uh, yeah, not all verse, I'm not going to put the verses on the screen, but I do have to open my Bible. Okay, Matthew 24, it's a long chapter, but the scripture tells me to read publicly. All right, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple, that's the structures, the stones. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, or sorry, will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken." Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. 
When its branches, I'm sorry, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. Doors, rather. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give him food in due season? He says, Blessed is that servant who his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Surely I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not a lot of information. (laughs) It goes into chapter 25, so it's actually one of the largest sermons that Jesus ever preached. And uh, so I think that because he spent so much time on it, we should probably give it some of our attention. Amen? Okay, so I'm going to be uh, going back over that, not verse by verse, but some essential verses to establish the outline and try to figure out how Jesus wants us to interpret all of this. So I'm not going to have all the verses on the screen, so you will have to just pay attention. Okay, because if I start putting verses up there, I'm just going to want to teach them all, and it'll be bad. So let's gather what's going on here. So it says that Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, some of the stones that were used to build the temple... Okay? they were colossal in size. And they did. They gave the observer really a sense of awe. And today, uh, like many other ancient wonders of, of the world, engineers and people are like, how in the world did they cut these stones and place these stones? Right? There's a lot of places like that in the world. Okay? So the boys, of course, they were impressed. They, they make note of it to Jesus. But Jesus looked past the current wonder of the temple to inform them that all of these massive stones would be removed. Now, the thought of that to a Jew is quite troubling because of what it would require for such a thing to happen. Okay? Okay, not that it couldn't be demolished, but why? Now, of course, an earthquake could probably you know, shake it to pieces. Um, there could be potentially a, a complete renovation. But the disciples got the sense that Jesus wasn't talking about any of those things, they're, they're picking up what he's putting down. Jesus is talking about the result of war. War. It's like, it's all going to be gone. 
and then Jesus walks away, okay? Just leave us with that thought. And then for the next 10 or 15 minutes, the disciples follow Jesus out of the temple, out of the city, down to the Kidron Valley, and then up the, uh, to the, the Mount of Olives, perhaps in silence, perhaps whispering among themselves the implications of what Jesus said, maybe the timing of it. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, <laughs> excuse me, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Mark's gospel tells us that it was actually Peter, James, and John that came to Jesus privately, probably because there was quite the stir among the 12. And so they go to Jesus to get the, the things settled. As they came to him with these questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And what or when will be the end of the age? Now, some see only two questions, the first and the second. Uh, they say that the last two are really just one question, uh, perhaps. But all of them need to be answered because there's so many details there, okay? Now, when the disciples made their, their inquiry about when and all of that, what, they were probably thinking of Zechariah 14, uh, one of the last prophecies given in the Old Testament, and it was just before the close of all of the Old Testament literature, one of the last prophecies ever given. That's what Zechariah left with the Jews. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. The Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Thank you. So Zechariah informed the Jews that Jerusalem one day is going to be surrounded by all nations and attacked. The city would be conquered. Half the people would go into captivity, but the remnant would not be cut off from the city. Before the city is completely overthrown, the Lord would show up. How many of you guys think that's a game changer? And he would fight against all of those nations and utterly defeat them. And then when the war is over, verse 8 of Zechariah says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. That's the good part, okay? So the prophets, not just Zechariah, they were anticipating essentially world war coming to the doorstep of Jerusalem. But before their utter destruction, Messiah would come to the rescue and defeat their enemies. Now, if you have been with us on Thursday nights, we discussed that on, uh, in Isaiah 63. Okay. Now, in this question, the disciples, it's, they're cocked already. They're, the gun is cocked. They, they have presuppositions. They have ideas. They've come with a loaded question. They're expecting Jesus, as they've been saying throughout the narrative, that he's going to come in his kingdom. He's going to wield military might over the Roman Empire. 
in their generation, expecting Jesus to initiate what we call the messianic age. So by crushing the Romans, he would bring to an end the current age, and then he would usher in the messianic age, the kingdom. Okay? The sign of his coming, as they asked about, a sign means something big, something amazing, a grand miracle of some kind, and they wanted to know what it was so that they could look for it, they could prepare for it. Now, as the end of the major section is, he comes in the clouds, all of his saints with him. That's a sign, isn't it? Yeah. So Jesus actually begins to answer their questions in verse 4, and his answer comes essentially in four parts. Okay? The beginning of sorrows, verse 4 through 8, the great tribulation, verse 9 through 28, the second coming of Christ, verse 29 through 20, uh, 31, and then there's illustrations, instructions concerning all of this in verse 32 through 51. That's a basic outline, a general outline. So now what I want to do is consider some of the passages within these that provide or help us consider when it will be a timestamp, when things might take place, which I believe leads to a proper way to interpret the whole chapter. Now, I have no... Uh, I'm not delusional. I, I, I know that I'm not going to give you everything perfect in this chapter. Is that fair to say up front? Okay. All right. The first verse to consider is verse 8, which is Jesus' description of what he said was coming in verse 4 through 7. He said, all that I've just said is the beginning of sorrows. Sorrows is literally birth pangs. Now, Paul, he picks up on this same discussion, same context, and he describes it the same way, but he, he is, I think, a little bit clear. He says, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. Okay, so Jesus said a time of deception is coming in this beginning of sorrows. He says people will come and they'll claim to be the Christ. That's part of the beginning of sorrows. But you know what is interesting historically <clears throat> is that that was happening before Jesus came. To them, it was Messiah, right? Messiah and Christ are the same thing, Messiah Mashiach is Hebrew, and Christ, or Christos, is Greek. But before Jesus came, Messiahs had proclaimed themselves. And then it also happened after. It's interesting. He also considered the beginning of sorrows would include the rumors of war, war themselves. Those are birth pangs. How often has that been happening? It certainly happened before Jesus came. It's happened after Jesus ascended, Okay. Beginning of sorrow is also described as nations and kingdoms coming against one another, along with famines, pestilences, earthquakes. How long have those things been happening? Forever. Okay? All happening before, after Jesus' coming. I think that is interesting. So, in this <clears throat> grand sermon, the Olivet Discourse, as it's called, is Jesus just informing his disciples about the status quo? Is that the intent here? Is he just saying that nothing will change? but I'm going to put a name to it. The beginning of sorrows is what is coming, just a repeat of what has always been happening. I think that's weird. Uh, they've asked these very specific questions that all have to do with what they already believe is the end. <clears throat> okay. And then Jesus in verse 6, he says, don't be troubled when this always happens. And these things, he says, must take place. Well, they probably know that. And then he says, but the end is not yet. The end not being yet, in spite of all these events, suggests that the beginning of sorrows, it implies that the beginning of sorrows is leading up to the end, being near to the end, anticipating the end, which is exactly what they were asking about. 
right? What will be the signs of the end of the age? Okay? These events seem to be confined to a specific, identifiable period in time. Okay, not the run-of-the-mill of world events, but something specific. Now, what is interesting is, you know, hindsight is 2020 when it comes to Old Testament prophecy that has been fulfilled already. But no one, I've read all of the positions out there of, of the most relevant or prominent scholars on Matthew 24, no one can look at the events of Matthew 24 and put their finger on them with 2020 hindsight. Nobody. Which suggests that what is predicted by Jesus just has not happened. Okay? Let's continue. Jesus says in verse 8 that they will be hated by all nations. Listen, there has never been a time in world history that all nations of the world have hated God's people because of Jesus. Never. There's never been a time that all nations have hated God's people because of Jesus. Verse 11, he says, many false prophets will arise and deceive many. Well, there's always been false prophets. There's always been deception. Uh, it is interesting that there's more of it today than ever, uh, thanks to Instagram, YouTube. YouTube is a hotbed of heresy, okay? I'm impressed with how many people come on that puppy and say the wildest, the wildest thing. But there are more false prophets. There's more deception now than ever. Uh, Jesus says lawlessness will abound. Now, this is interesting. Because, because of the gospel, because of the influence of the church throughout history, lawlessness has decreased until modern times. And now we see the, the you know, lawlessness increasing again. All of the, 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 you know, the advancement of the, the, you know, what we call the Judeo-Christian creed or morality, it was spreading because of the church, and now it's, it's fading. I think that's very interesting, historically. And then Jesus says that he who endures to the end will be saved, verse 13. So he who endures these things will come to the end and be saved. So the beginning of sorrows and what is mentioned here, that implies at least that those things lead to the end of the age itself. Okay? Also, verse 14 he says, the gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel will reach uh, <clears throat> the end of the age in the midst of great difficulty and persecution and deception. Don't you love it? The gospel is going to succeed. It will go out to all. Not all will be saved, but it will go out, just as Jesus said. Now again, what Jesus is saying and what he's answering if he is answering their questions at all, does not look to the immediate future, but to the distant. Everything is in reference to the end. Now, more important to the timing is verse 15. This is essential to all of the interpretation of Matthew 20. Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, doesn't that sound bad? Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So Daniel prophesied about what is called the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. He spoke of the event in Daniel 9 and Daniel chapter 12. Jesus says that the abomination of desolation will occur in the holy place, that is, in the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, of Daniel's prophecy about the abomination of desolation, Jesus says, let the reader understand. 
Okay. He's saying understanding what Daniel said is apparently indispensable to a proper interpretation of Matthew 24. So guess where we have to go in the next few weeks? We have to obey Christ, okay? We have to go there. We have to understand. He's saying that whatever Daniel has said about the abomination of desolation is going to prescribe a hermeneutic, a method of interpreting Jesus' prophecy here and the timing of it. Now, I want to just, I want to scratch the surface on this because, like I said, repetition is the best medicine. The prophecy of Daniel 9 takes place within what is called the 70 weeks of Daniel. And we'll establish there that a week means seven years that is divided into two, three and a half year periods. Daniel 9.27 tells us that the abomination of desolation will take place in the middle of this seven year period or three and a half years into it. And then Daniel 12.11 says that following the abomination of desolation, there will be 1,290 days, which is what? Three and a half years. Now that's interesting because Jesus mentions the beginning of sorrows. He mentions the abomination of desolation. And then he's going to talk about the great tribulation. Okay. I think that is the outline of the end uh, prescribed by Daniel. There's every reason to believe that all of these events that Jesus is talking about fall into a seven-year period just preceding the second coming of Christ. So we'll explore Daniel 9 and 12 when I get back from my time off. And hopefully, you're going to go seek to understand yourself. Now, something that is super important to know is that Daniel prophesied about two different abominations that caused desolation. One of them has already been fulfilled prior to Jesus' coming, okay? And it gives us an idea of what the second one would look like, which is then reinforced by Paul in 2 Thessalonians. The one that would be fulfilled first is found in Daniel 11, okay? The first abomination that caused desolation, that is, in the temple of God in Jerusalem, was committed in 167 B.C. by Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? Uh, Antiochus IV, uh, it's short for Theos Epiphanes, a name he certainly gave himself, which means God manifest. Okay? After he conquered Jerusalem, he slaughtered a female pig. He offered its blood on the altar of sacrifice, and then he set up an image of Zeus upon it in the temple. You think that's problematic? Okay. He apparently took himself to be the manifestation of, of Zeus. This was abominable for a number of reasons. A number of reasons. Antiochus was not a priest. Only priests could offer sacrifice in the temple. He was actually a Gentile, so there's no way that he could even be a priest. Pigs were unclean, and they were forbidden to be offered on the altar of God, and no pagan idol could ever be erected in God's temple. Now, this so defiled the temple that worship could no longer continue there, which made the temple desolate, okay? Now, true worship had to cease until the temple was cleansed, and it was rededicated, which occurred later, also according to Daniel's prophecy, okay? <clears throat> now, this whole story is interesting. As the Jews, okay, they, they, they basically ran off Antiochus, who went crazy and died some bizarre death, and um, they took Jerusalem back, they took the temple, and as they were rededicating it, they were burning uh, oil, uh, according to the prescription in, in the law, they didn't have enough oil, 
They prayed that it would burn the whole period of time required. It burned straight through, and it created what is known as the miracle of light. What holiday did the Jews celebrate? Hanukkah. I know another important Jew that celebrated Hanukkah, Jesus, in John chapter 10. It's not a prescribed holiday. It's just a big deal in Jewish history. Okay? So this first event in the second century BC, it shows us, it demonstrates to us what an abomination that causes desolation looks like. So that when we see another one, we got a good idea what it looks like. Okay? Paul mentions something very similar to the Thessalonians. He says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of Christ, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul's description of this event would be abominable, wouldn't it? Clearly, blasphemous. It would cause desolation, just as it did in, in 167 B.C. Okay? So the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9 and Daniel 12, Matthew 24, verse 15, and 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, they're all referring to the same event. Same event. The first abomination of desolation took place in the temple. Jesus said that the second one would be standing in the holy place. Paul says that it will be in the temple of God. Okay, now there are some who believe that Jesus was referring to 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. The problem is, that's all they did. They destroyed the temple, but they didn't commit the abomination of desolation. Now some insist that they did because the Romans displayed or erected their ensigns, okay, with the Roman eagle on it, on the temple precinct, okay? But the ensigns were never in the temple. We know this because there was a Jewish eyewitness there who cared if they did go inside the temple. His name is Josephus. He said they didn't. Also, the Roman general was intentional about not profaning the Jewish temple. Now, the soldiers burned it to the ground, but no profane thing was placed in it. Listen carefully. Jesus said that the abomination would be standing in the holy place. Paul said that it would be in the temple of God, and Daniel says that they will defile the sanctuary of the temple and take away the daily sacrifice. What Rome did was not an abomination of desolation, it was just destruction, very similar to what the Babylonians did, but nobody ever called it an abomination of desolation. Very interesting. Those who say that the Romans fulfilled Jesus' words, I think that they make a mockery of the accuracy of his prophecy. They say that the end signs being on the temple precinct was close enough. Like, you know, biblical prophecy is like horseshoes and hand grenades. This is close enough. But the abominable thing was either in the holy place or it wasn't. It was either in the temple or it wasn't. It was either in the sanctuary or it wasn't. And historically, it was not. Okay? Jesus said that we are to understand what the abomination of desolation is from Daniel's prophecy. And what Daniel says does not look like what happened in 70 AD. This places the events of Daniel 9, 12, Matthew 24, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, after 70 AD, and yet future to where we are now. It's something that it's hard to say we're looking forward to it, but we're looking forward to it, okay? Now, some people say that this had to happen in 70 AD 
before the temple was destroyed. You, you have to have a temple, after all, to commit an abomination of desolation. Okay? So, well, first, what they call the abomination of desolation didn't happen in a temple anyway. Second, I guess that settles it. I mean, currently, there is no temple in Jerusalem, so it could never happen. Well, Jesus currently isn't on planet Earth, so I guess he never will be. What kind of an argument is that? Israel has been without a temple before, and what did they do? They built another one. Prophecy predicts another temple in the future, so guess what I expect? Another temple, okay? Whom the man of sin, the son of perdition, is going to stand in and declare himself to be God. He will be Theos Epiphanes Part 2, okay? Now, I don't, like some believe that he'll be Antiochus Epiphanes reincarnated. I, I don't go there, okay? Uh, I think that one just prefigured the latter. Let's move on. In response to the people seeing the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, Jesus says, when you see it, flee from it. Verse 16, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Listen carefully. By the time the Romans placed their ensigns on the temple precinct in 70 AD, no one had the time to flee. So if that's the case, historically, why would Jesus give the instruction? By the time they could see it, it was too late to flee. That time had passed. Does Jesus give worthless instruction? Absolutely not. He's talking about a different event. Okay. Jesus continued in verse 21. He says, Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So he's saying that following the abomination of desolation, there's going to be great tribulation, unparalleled, unparalleled, like the world has never seen, and they'll never see it following it. Was 70 AD the worst tribulation the world has ever seen? Certainly wasn't the worst tribulation the Jews have ever seen. It actually didn't hold a candle to what happened in the Holocaust. Not a candle. Certainly wasn't the worst tribulation that uh, has ever occurred on planet Earth. You know, look at our own civil war. Uh, Mao's China, World War I and II. I think we could go on all day with example after example of tragedies and loss of life that far exceed what happened to the Jews in 70 AD. Jesus was either referring to something else or he was mistaken. What do you guys think? <laughs> the greatest tribulation the world will ever see, it's on the horizon. And it will be so bad that God will have to personally intervene to spare the elect, verse 20. And the way that he does that is just exactly the way Zechariah says it happens. He returns. He returns. The great tribulation begins three and a half years before the second coming. And it will be the second coming that brings the greatest tribulation to an end. How do I know that? Because Jesus says it. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What did the guy say? The boy said, what will be the sign of your coming? Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Does that look like a sign? <laughs> immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jesus said, I'll be coming back, okay? And I'll put an end to it with my great power and glory. And then he'll send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds, from one heaven, 
from one end of heaven to the other. The moment, the very moment he returns, the events of Isaiah 63 and Zechariah 14 will unfold and Jerusalem will be saved. Remember, all nations will come to the doorstep of Jerusalem and they will take half the city and then Jesus will come. And then finally, in verse 34, Jesus says this, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. There's been, you know, no small dispute over what the world Jesus is saying there about generation. Uh, Many people uh, thought that the generation began in 1948, May 14, 1948, at the establishment of Israel as a nation. And so they were saying, well, Jesus is going to come back, you know, within that generation. So they came up with, you know, 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1988. Okay. This generation, according to the context, is the generation that will witness all these things that Jesus has predicted from the beginning of sorrows, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the second coming. That's what he's saying. That generation will endure until the second coming. Now, some have said that Jesus was referring to the current generation of his day, that they would not pass away until the events of 70 AD. Well, much of that generation did pass away before 70 AD, and all of the apostles but one passed away, right? Except for John. It's interesting. I think clearly what happened in 70 AD is a different event from what Zechariah 14 is talking about. In both Zechariah 14 and 70 AD, Jerusalem is surrounded, but in 70 AD, the Jews were judged. In Zechariah 14, the Jews are, they're saved. Very different. Judged in 70 AD, that's already done. So we're now looking forward to Zechariah 14, which hasn't happened yet. The bidding of sorrows has not begun. The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet in chapter 9 and 12, Jesus in Matthew 24, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, has not occurred, which Daniel says happens three and a half years after the beginning of sorrows. The great tribulation, which comes after the abomination of desolation, has not happened. And have you guys seen Christ return yet? So in conclusion, uh, when I return, we're going to be interpreting Matthew 24 as yet future. Okay, I do have to deal with Luke. <laughs> We're going to be spending a lot of time in Daniel 9 and 12, just as Jesus said we must. Okay, uh, And then we'll also look at how Jesus is teaching here is actually an outline for the book of Revelation chapter 6 through 20. Isn't that interesting? Same events. Okay, If Matthew 24 is future, Revelation 6 through 20, 22 must be future. Now one more passage and then we'll conclude. Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So keeping with the context, this refers to the second coming, okay? Uh, Many want it to refer to the rapture, but it doesn't. It hasn't been talked about. It hasn't been implied. Nothing. It refers to the second coming of Christ. Uh, We'll deal thoroughly with what this statement is saying when we go verse by verse. But let me say for now that when it's stated Uh, to an audience of Scripture, it is always stated as if they could witness it in their lifetime. I hate that. It's always imminent to everybody in the Scriptures. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's about to happen. Ah, it's imminent. It's about to happen. Every audience in Scripture is left with the idea of at any moment. Now, that's a good thing because it keeps us on our toes. And every day we get closer to a date that we don't know. So let me conclude real quick. When it comes to things concerning the end, 
That is, to the study of last things, eschatology. You guys, it should excite the believer. It should. We should be looking forward to it. I don't think we should be looking forward to the struggle leading up to it. But the fulfillment of all things, as Paul says, to our full redemption, as Daniel 9 says, to the end of sin, as all the prophets said, to the residency of righteousness on planet earth and in us, amen, to seeing God and dwelling with him for eternity. And then as Paul says, concerning this whole context, he says, comfort, encourage one another. We should all be encouraged by the study of eschatology. In fact, the book of Revelation says, he who reads and understands uh, will receive a blessing. There's goodness in it. So all this will be unraveled. I'm looking forward to it because really I just want to see the king. Amen? All right. 9.59. Whoa. It's like I timed it. Go ahead and stand up. We'll pray. Well, Father, the, the truth is, as we know from the word, we've, by sin, we've really messed our world up. But you're going to come and fix it. But not everybody wants you to fix it. Not everybody wants to yield to you as the Redeemer. Lord, I pray that, that we would be the people that look forward to it. As Peter says, knowing that all of this is going to come about, what manner of persons ought we to be in, in holiness, Lord? So, Lord, use this study to purge us, to get as much sin away from us as we can. And, Lord, help it to put a sense of urgency in us that the gospel needs to go out because there's an expiration date to your grace and to the, the extension of the gospel. Lord, help us to be preachers of the word, to be lovers of mankind, and Lord, to walk before you in a way that is well-pleasing to you. Lord, we thank you, we love you, and uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, real quick, while I'm gone, uh, all of the pastors of Calvary Chapel are gonna be preaching so I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing from them. I, I assigned all of their sermons for them. So it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Lord bless you guys.